0: Hello and welcome to Poetry Spoken here, I'm producer Jack Rossiter-Munley. Today's episode is the second part in our ongoing series about poetry and war. This is also the second part of the interview that was featured in the first part of this series with Sam Grake. In the first part of the interview we talked about the literary and cultural landscape right before during and after world war one we also talked about some defining features of the war and how they show up in literature today we discuss specific poets who became famous either for their work during the war or for their stories afterwards if you're interested in the first part of my interview with sam listen back to episode 20 of poetry spoken here About a couple of poets. All right. You want to start with Wilfred Owen?
1: All right, sounds good. Cool. Uh,
0: what is the story of Wilfred Owen? What is what is his background?
1: His background is um, not terribly exciting. He was an upper middle class gentleman, um, came from a relatively wealthy rural area, was really into, you know, fox hunting and riding his horse and becoming educated as a lot of Um, young aristocrats were. Um, He had a really close relationship with his mother. Other than that, I don't know a lot about his family and about his background. Um, I know that he did have an older brother who survived the war and heavily edited a lot of his letters and diaries so that it became a little bit difficult to know a lot about Wilfredone's personal life. He, I think he was 20 when the war started and he was an officer um, because most members of the aristocracy sort of became officers automatically. Um, Yeah, he died uh, a little under a week before the armistice was signed. He was killed in battle.
0: Wow. And so his personal story, not particularly exciting, Mm -hmm. what prompted him to pick up a pen? What got him writing about his war experience?
1: Um, he'd always written poetry. Um, I think he started writing poetry and saving it when he was 12 years old, but um, Sassoon was a huge influence on him. They were both at Craig Lockhart War Hospital. Um, Owen was there for physical injury, Sassoon was there for a variety of other reasons, but um, Sassoon was at that time prominent and prolific and loud and well-published, and Owen had an incredible amount of respect and admiration for him. And um, his work sounds notably like Sassoon's um, while he's at Craig Lockhart War Hospital. And so I think he started taking um, stylistic and technical cues from Sassoon, um, really wanted to emulate his quality in writing. Um, and I think also as he you know, matured, he began to sort of look at himself not just as, an individual producing expressions, but as one of a group experiencing, um, you know, a cultural disaster. Um, and that certainly, I think, is um, a prominent theme in a lot of his war poetry. He called it the pity of war. You know, he wrote about people's suffering.
0: So suffering you know. is sort of a main, a main theme. What are some other hallmarks of his style or his subject matter that makes him unique?
1: I mean, he incorporates uh, extreme violence into poetry beautifully. Um, I don't think there's necessarily any other poet who was able to sort of weave this gory tapestry as effectively as he did. And so I think people frequently have the experience of reading Owen's poetry and feeling like they're reading something truly beautiful and at the same time seeing that they're reading a
0: horror story. What's a poem that's a good example of that?
1: There's a bunch of them. Let me break up my book. Well, I think <laughs> Parable of the Young Man and the Old um, brings together a bunch of the themes that I like about World War I poetry. The Parable of the Old Man and the Young is, um, you know, the story of Abraham and Isaac, but reconfigured for the sake of World War I um, with, you know, the soldiers being put in the position of Isaac and Abraham being figuratively the political figures, power figures of Britain. Um, and, you know, in the poem there's burning, there's cutting, there's blood, there's um, you know, twisting, there's um, plenty of violence. And then in the end of it, uh, instead of the story turning out like it does in the Bible, it ends, but the old man would not sow, but slew his son and half the seed of Europe one by one. So it's this kind of Systematic slaughtering of um, European young men, um, and I mean, I think that the you know religious structure of the poem was probably really appealing to a lot of um, readers in Britain, and they you know went into it thinking like, oh great, I'm going to read this story about how the status of my nation is reified using a biblical parable. This is wonderful, and they get to the end of it and it's devastating.
0: Uh, it's again sort of the subversion of a religious structure, right?
1: Arms on the Boy is another good one. It's more of a description than anything else of um, someone who's, you know, technically a man. He's probably 18 or 19 years old, but he's being framed as a young child and he um, is developing this obsessive relationship with his gun. And so he, you know, touches the bayonet and it's kind of like phallic and creepy and he dies and there's, you know, bright red blood and his brain is exploded. And, <laughs> you know, so it, Um, Again, the appeal of masculine youth was thematically pertinent to 19th century Britain, but then to have this ideal of masculine beauty be fixated on his gun as opposed to, you know, fox hunting and then to be exploded um, is, you know, tragic and ironic and sort of cut to the heart of people's expectations. of course his two most famous poems are also
0: good examples. First of all, why don't you start with um, dulce decorum est and tell us what the Latin means. (laughs)
1: Sure, Um, so the title dulce decorum est, um, it is sweet and good, um, is the first half of um, the Latin that ends with the second line of it, pro patria mori, it is sweet and good to die for one's country, which is the so that's the you know bookends of um, a scene of a gassing, um, wherein it is distinctly not sweet and good <laughs> to die for one's country.
0: So, with that context in mind, why don't you just talk us through this poem a little bit?
1: The opening starts with bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags. We cursed through sludge till on the haunting as we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge." So the popular conception of the war in Britain as it was happening even was that these, you know, brave young boys were going off to kind of do glorious warrior-like things. They were having a great time. It was kind of like Boy Scouts for adults. Um, I think a newspaper even said that. Um, And so... I think Owen's primary goal in the first stanza is to show people that that's not at all what's happening. Um, he presents young men with these really old qualifiers, uh, old beggars under sacks, it's not really how anyone wants to think about their teenage son spending his time while being shot at. And he continues, men marched to sleep, and so there's this kind of loss of individual consciousness, you know, like a mass movement towards something really terrible. Uh, many had lost their boots but limped on bloodshot all went lame all blind so i think the lameness and the blindness is particularly important because owen removes um responsibility and accountability for the events from the soldiers and that necessarily means that he has to place it somewhere else and in this instance he's placing it on you know the larger meaning of dolce et decorum est pro patria mori um and then we have the scene of the gas immediately after that. Um, and I think these are probably some of the most famous lines. Uh, Dim through the misty panes in thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning in all my dreams before me, my helpless sight, sorry. He plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. And so I think that is both um, a literal scene of gassing, but it's also um, because the last two lines are separated, like the you know, the post-traumatic recurrent nightmare of being gassed or of seeing other people be gassed. I think that the indication of like the, the ongoingness of the trauma and the pain is um, important to Owen because even if people live through a gassing, they live with the effects of it or they're traumatized by it. Um, they remember other people's deaths and those uh, you know can't really be taken away so yes uh, if in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin if you could hear it every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs obscene as cancer bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues so the Grotesqueness of death by gas, um, which I mean, gas became internationally illegal for warfare after World War One because people were so horrified by its effects. Um, and I think for Owen, bringing the image of um, a young man dying of gas into like the public sphere was something that was really important. Um, because I think as time went on, as an officer, he felt increasingly uh protective of and responsible for these young men who were you know at that point like from lower middle class backgrounds and probably um anywhere from 16 to 19 years old um and just being like (laughs) you know shoveled into the trenches to die um and he found that to be outrageous um and so i think that image of the froth corrupted lungs is uh really poignant and it hit home with a lot of people like i said particularly later on looking back at how there really you know was nothing glorious nothing attractive about the war it was just this like really disgusting disturbing obscene way to die and so he ends by saying my friend you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie dolce et decorum est pro patria mori i think in that last uh, a couple of lines he's accusing the older generation of having indoctrinated younger people into thinking that this was going to be a grand adventure, that it was going to be a way to define themselves as warriors or as heroes or as you know members of their class or what have you. And instead they just died slowly and horribly and that's a terrible thing to encourage
0: people to go off and do with their lives. That ending is so powerful and it's so pointed sort of in almost an accusation and it does such an effective job I mean, it, he puts it in Latin, which is in its own way sort of pointing the finger at the establishment. Right. You have to know Latin to know what it means. You have to have been in a situation where you were given that message from an early age. He has a clear idea of whose fault it is that all of this is happening. So, moving on from Dolce Decorum S, let's talk a little bit about one of Owen's other famous poems, Anthem for Doomed Youth.
1: I think my favorite line is the first one What passing bells for these who die as cattle. Again, uh, immediately taking blame and guilt away from the soldiers for their own deaths Um, by uh, depicting them as cattle. I think he's not saying that they're stupid, but that they're totally under someone else's control. Um, Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells or any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. So in a lot of those lines, there's um, this dichotomy between something like choirs and then wailing shells, um, sad shires and bugles, um, but then, you know, the shrillness, um, mockeries, rifles rapid rattle. There is uh, this kind of mutilation of traditional death scenes, death rituals, into something that might happen at the front. And I think he's sort of pointing to the desanctification of death and, you know, necessarily the desanctification of life that comes along with it, calling it an anthem for a doomed youth, kind of. The soldiers are as doomed as the cattle are, you know, from the second that they walk onto the field their their purpose and their end is sort of predetermined. So it continues, what candles may be held to speed them all, not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes, shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing out of blinds. And I think um, Owen does tend to use a lot of light in his poetry. And so the The drawing down of blinds, the pal glimmers of goodbyes, you know, that's kind of this visual shutting off of lightness. And I think that, you know, at the front, there was this kind of continuous shutting off of light because the air was so filled with smoke and filth and, you know, shells, artillery, what have you, that um, there was literally no light, but also the shutting off of an individual light in a soldier. Again, the cow imagery, you know, the the cow is killed, the light goes off, whether it's a bolt to the head or a shot or whatever, which is frequently the case with the soldiers too. You know, a little chunk of a shell comes flying through the air and hits them in the back of the head and that's it. So I think that between the cows and the making dark, um, Owen is trying to illustrate that the soldiers are kind of um, helpless in this enclosed area and their only way out is to die. Hence the title Anthem for a
0: Doomed Youth. The title is so in line with the first line of this poem and then the beginning of Dulce Decorum S. You have sleepwalkers right. and you have cattle, and the youth are doomed. Right. It's not like they have any agency. Whatever their social class may have been before the war, it's been decided that they need right. to go and die for their country, and they've been told this lie about what that means. That's all so fascinating. Um, Let's move on from Owen and talk about a writer I know influenced him and who is a very well known World War One poet in his own right, Siegfried Sassoon. Can you tell us a little bit about Sassoon? And we'll talk about his poetry.
1: So Sassoon also from, you know, a genteel, aristocratic background, was really into fox hunting, Um, was a little bit older when the war started. He um, very quickly developed a sort of paternalistic attitude towards his um, men, Um, was uh, sort of distantly affectionate towards them, um, felt very strongly that even though he fundamentally disagreed with the war, um, it was his duty to his men that he stay and fight and sort of care for them um he was famously put into craig lockhart after his 1917 treatise on his disagreement with the war the political disagreement um and (laughs) robert graves was trying to help him get reassigned to some um, managerial position back in London instead of going back to the front, and he insisted on going back to the front because he first of all thought he was going to die and wanted to die, and second of all thought that it was his duty to his men that he should be with them, die with them. So he wrote quite a lot uh, during the war and after the war. I actually know more about his prose than I do his poetry, though I have read his poetry He was connected to the Bloomsbury circle, which included Virginia Woolf. He was somewhat connected to continental European artistic circles. He introduced Owen and Graves um, to sort of the high-end literary groups of Britain. Um, Owen only very briefly while he was also at Craig Blockhart. Of course, Owen died and didn't get to pursue his career after the war. Yeah, he lived to be quite old, unlike most of them. <laughs> yeah, he died so, in like
0: 1967, I think.
1: Yeah, like. I think so. Yeah.
0: I was looking it up the other day, it was surprisingly recent. Sort of similar to Owen's, what are some of the yeah. hallmarks of his poetry and prose? What stands out sure. about him?
1: Um, he was really angry, I think. Um, whereas Owen was uh, sad. <laughs> I mean, Owen was accusatory, but he was sad and accusatory. Whereas... Um, Sassoon was really just pissed off at Britain for letting this happen, Um, and Christ imagery features prominently in a lot of his work. Um, I think he has a poem in which, uh, you know, they draft um, Jesus and send him to fight in the trenches, and he dies, Um, so, (laughs) Uh, and he has a lot of, um, like, halo and cross imagery. He kind of If, you know, Jesus isn't an actual character in one of his poems, then soldiers will sort of all be Jesus figures. Um, And so there's this sort of idea that Britain is unnecessarily crucifying over and over um, these people who are blameless and innocent. Um, Of his prose, um, he is like exceptionally realist, I think, for his time. Um, and he has uh, lots of pastoral imagery. He does manage to kind of sneak in some, you know, homoerotic scenes and imagery, um, which, you know, was enough to make him sort of a subversive outsider in the literary world. But, I mean, as for structure and style, he's surprisingly conservative in his prose.
0: Do you think that conservative aspect to his style allowed him to be a little bit more adventurous in his subject matter?
1: I think so. I mean, I also don't want to misstate it. He was not overtly homosexual or homoerotic in his narrative. I mean, he has these um, sort of scenes of intimate friendship between men. He has a few scenes of um, male attraction, but nothing as overt um, as some of his contemporaries who were less published were writing. That said, I think that, you know, sure he was able to publish something that had scenes of male attraction because they were both, you know, English gentlemen who were into horses and into foxes and, you know, they were just going through their schoolboy phase or what have you. Um, so it's a little more dismissible because of his style, yes.
0: And so you talked about his treatise against the work. can you say a little bit about that and what got him into the mental institution?
1: Sure. Um, So he had been wounded, um, and I think while he was away on leave, he wrote this statement basically saying, you know, I indict the government for gross mismanagement, for neglect, for poor conduct. I think that you know the deaths of millions of men um, happen because the British government mishandled this situation. Um, there's rampant power and corruption. Uh, <laughs> this is a problem. Um, the war should stop immediately. And essentially he was calling for people to rally behind him and demanding that the war be stopped immediately and um in 1917 it was looking increasingly like the Germans were going to win the war and so i think part of sassoon's strategic timing was this like last ditch desperate bid for britain not to be defeated by germany um that he would rather there be you know a surrender than a defeat per se and Precisely because of the timing, the British government was sort of at the peak of its suppression of um, dissent. Um, people were being locked up for publicly dissenting. I've actually read about a number of well, like early feminists who were trying to, you know, rally people to pacifism and they would be put into prison um, either indefinitely or until the end of the war or until the end of a particular battle or whatever. Um, so by allying himself with those pre-existing forces, I think Sassoon appeared particularly dangerous, and also because he was um, part of landed gentry, because he was so well-educated, he was older, he had been at the front for three years, and so um, I think his statements carried a lot of water, you know, they were strong, people knew who he was, Um, and that made it all the more terrifying, and so the British government wanted to actually put him in prison, Um, but I think... um, because of some, you know, string pulling in military management, he got sent to Craig Lockhart um, instead. And people, you know, the government was trying to frame him as being crazy, and not as being a political, you know, dissenter, because that would have been much more dangerous. So he was treated for uh, shell shock, for neurasthenia, at Craig Lockhart, and then went back.
0: It sounds like his his prominence was very important at the time. That his yeah. both just because of who he was when he grew up, but also the fact that he sort of had connected himself to all right. the different high profile literary circles, mm-hmm. that he was, you know, pretty well known for his his work and his other activities that made a big difference in terms of right. who sort of cared what he had to say at the time.
1: Yeah, certainly.
0: And then let's talk a little bit about a couple of his pieces. Okay. I'm curious if there are any of his pieces that you think are representative of that anger that you were talking about?
1: Yeah. Well, there's one called The Redeemer. um, And it's pretty long, so I'm not going to plague you by reading the whole thing. But um, it's the one in which he sort of identifies the English soldiers as Christ. Um, And so he... uh, basically, it's a series of little sketches of Christ being in these different terrible positions that no one would ever, you know, want um, the Son of God to be placed in. I think he has him, like, drowning in a ditch of, you know, mud and bodies, and then he has him, you know, being shot, and he has him, like, uh, standing in murk and darkness. Um, And so it's just these series of, Um, situations that were routine for front soldiers Um, and by identifying you know the prominent figure in each of these scenes with Christ um, I think he's simultaneously sort of subverting the power hierarchy of Christianity in Britain but also saying you know look at how tragic it is what's happening to these individuals you know why would you persecute someone this way isn't this the same thing as you know um, Christ being nailed up on a cross and, you know, dying for our sins, I think the soldier as the bearer of Britain's sins um, is really a strong feature of the Redeemer. Um, and of course, the irony is that at the end of the poem, there is no redemption, unlike with Christ, you know, whereas Christ died for a purpose, these um, young men who were taking on the political Sins of Britain are not redeeming anybody. You know, they're not going to rise again. They're just these limp bodies in the mud.
0: Just being sent to die. They're not coming right. back. Right. Wow. Yeah. Are there any other poets who you think it's very important to mention and talk about a little bit?
1: Um, I think Edmund Blunden um, is the other major one who I'd just like to point out. Blunden, um, unlike Sassoon and Owen was not ironic. Blunden was earnest. He felt like the war um, was this totally undigestible experience that he'd had. And he um, wrote so much and many of the same things over and over and over again, and never felt that he was properly able to process anything well enough to even publish it. Um, Frequently his friends sort of like compelled him to publish things that they thought were good enough, otherwise he never would have published anything. Um, He eventually moved to Tokyo just because he said that he couldn't even stand being in Britain anymore um, because Britain, he thought, was like, you know, the site of this mass trauma that he just couldn't handle. He integrated his poetry into his memoir of the war, undertones of war. In a retrospective reading of his uh, memoir and the poetry, it's possible for it to come across as being ironic because he does depend fairly heavily, actually, on... um, really romantic, sentimental, and pastoral troops that were common before the war, but um, I think he is actually in good faith trying to like mobilize these Victorian forms and structures and images um, to characterize and encapsulate the war and is simply not able to. And I think it's his inability to um, satisfyingly capture the essence of the war for himself that's the most important thing about his poetry and his prose sort of a demonstration of the ineffectiveness of pre-war literary structures.
0: I'm interested in that idea that he sort of went over and over the same ground trying to find something and not being able to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Very powerful and pretty profoundly sad. The subject of trauma comes up a lot in relation to World War One, and just in our conversation. It's come up in, I think, in relation to every poet we've talked about. Can you yeah. say a little bit uh, about what trauma meant both to these poets and, in general, what kind of a trauma World War I was to the countries and the people involved?
1: Sure. Um, I think from like a cultural history reading of it, terms like broken and shattered and ruptured and rift and broken keep coming up over and over and over again. And so I think there uh, is definitely a retrospective um, vision of World War One as having uh, irreparably disrupted all pre-existing order. Um, I think even the idea of what a nation state was before World War One was totally changed. Um, and so I think I would call that a trauma because it made life sort of unreadable or incomprehensible based on what people thought they knew about themselves and about their societies. Um, uh, let's see, in terms of a more specific sort of trauma, I mean, I think if you think of trauma in um, one of its most basic descriptions or definitions as being like um, a collision between blunt objects or a blunt object colliding with something, you know, it's like a traumatic blow. Um, World War One was literally a traumatic blow both to, you know, the earth, to populations, to production, to... Um, you know, the economy, um I think the economic trauma of World War One had probably the longest lasting devastating effects um, of all of the devastating effects. <laughs> and then, of course, there was you know millions and millions of people returning to their former you know towns and cities and villages, um just having like irreparable and incomprehensible mental illness issues, Um, people who, you know, couldn't speak properly, couldn't uh, be alone, couldn't sleep, couldn't work, couldn't have relationships, couldn't have families. You know, there was um, a a huge demographic that was just simply um, unable to participate in what people thought of as normal life. Um, And so I think that there was like a, a social trauma in that a total lack of continuity um, because people couldn't do all of the things they were supposed to do. They couldn't have families like they used to or get married like they used to. And in a lot of instances, the only survivor in a family would be a mother. And according to you know pre-war laws, she wasn't even allowed to inherit anything. Um, and so it was like, <laughs> you know what do you do with the remains of the war um when there is not really an ontological person for the remains to be dealt with by um so i think uh there was this huge and really rapid redefinition of who was a citizen of who was able to participate in what parts of um political and social life there was you know also uh widespread loss of the means of production in France. Um, I think, sorry, this sort of popped into my head, but the British uh, wealthier classes, but also to a lesser extent, some of the French and German wealthier classes had this idea that um, like there was an agrarian ideal out there somewhere that you could, I mean, this is the whole idea of pastoralism is that you um, can take a train and you can, cross the boundary from, you know, the developed modern world into the sort of timeless uh, peasant world and it will be nice and pleasant there and you will, you know, escape the fetters of modern time and mechanization and so on and so forth. And um, when large scale military mechanism was mobilized in those very, you know, ideal agrarian spaces that sort of disrupted these cultural dreams of there being a place untouched by modernity and untouched by mechanism. Um, And so there was, I think, a brutalization of cultural dreams as well
0: as literal pure brutalization. Uh, Is there anything you think that we've missed or haven't talked about?
1: Yes, but (laughs) I think there's probably like an infinite quantity of things to talk about. So, Is there something
0: Um, important you think we've overlooked?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, I guess, for the sake of a little bit of internationalism, I would just want to throw out that um, the way that the trauma of the war was processed was totally different in other countries. I've kind of been digging, looking for German war poetry um, in my sort of, like, meanderings around doing research for my thesis and have come across surprisingly little poetry. And I know in the beginning I said, you know, there was this total lack of sentiment, and I found it strange that, you know the um, the lack of sentiment, but the uh, sort of reification of the experience in literature didn't sort of carry over into poetry. Um, and I, I don't know why that is yet. I'm still kind of trying to figure that out.
0: I was wondering if you think there is a reason or if you have an inkling of why mm-hmm. uh, poetry mm-hmm. was a uniquely bad medium for the German response to World War I or the feelings that... Right. Uh, we'd sort of touched on earlier the mm-hmm. the difficulty of finding a response at all, and then when yeah. finding that response, that poetry was just not the way to to present it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in my you know speculation about it, at least, I think there was um, a real fear of being an individual in Germany in the interwar period um, because there were so many ways you could be accused of something, either of you know not having believe strongly enough in the war caused initially, or um, of being too dismissive of the post-war government, or any number of things. I mean, I think there was so much political instability in Germany at the time, and it was such a young state that um, I think there was just more fear in being singled out, and because poetry is such an individual and such a subjective, unique way of expressing oneself that maybe there was more fear around that um and perhaps because expression in poetry was such a you know british thing um maybe you know maybe it was a response to that too maybe there was sort of disdain for britain and britain's artistic culture um wrapped up in it beyond that i i don't really know i know that a lot of um you know educated uh germans of Resources were trying to get to Paris and to London, um, and that there was this sort of polarization between um, the far left and the like proto-fascists happening in Germany. Um, and I think that made it even scarier to be someone who um, maybe increasingly didn't agree with the increasingly dominant forces of the right of conservatism. Um,
0: but like I said, those
1: are just my speculations on it.
0: So, it sound good to me. Uh, cool. That- was there much of an American response, just quickly, or was that more reserved for after the war? Because America, obviously, or the United States, I should say, and yeah. the war later than the other countries, they were continentally separated or geographically more so mm-hmm. than any country, um, sort of similar to the engagement with World War II. It was a yeah. war over there that they ended up being dragged into. Mm-hmm. How did that affect the literary output?
1: Um, I know embarrassingly little about American literature, period, um, and embarrassingly little about World War One with regards to America. Um, I know more about the sort of response along racial lines, I guess, in America than anything else. I know that America economically made out great as a result of the First World War, but other than that, <laughs> I haven't really got much for you.
0: Okay, cool. Can you say a little bit about what your research is and what your thesis is on.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm doing this really wacky thing. Um, In the post-World War II period, there is this really popular thing called documentary theater that um, a lot of Germans were starting to do as a way of um, depicting the events of the Second World War without trying to fictionalize them. And um, this really great, fascinating, Um, literary critic named Lurie Nussbaum uh, was trying to write about why it was so popular and so successful and she um, coined the term um, stereoscopic literature um, which is you know supposed to indicate that there's a three-dimensionalization of the subject matter Um, and so I've sort of co-opted her term Um, And I'm applying it to German and British interwar memoir. Um, Most of the interwar memoir, in Germany at least, was um, wildly unpopular and frequently suppressed. And, you know, Remarque wrote, All Quiet on the Western Front, but that's not really even a memoir, and even that had a lot of difficulty. There was this, like, public resistance to digesting the war in uh, narrative. And then Ernst Jünger published um, In um Storm of Steel. And everyone thought it was going to be this like terrible failure, and it um, was actually wildly successful. People ate it up and wanted more, and no one really knew why, but the critics all loved it. And the same thing happened to Blunden's Undertones of War in Britain. And so critics have called both of these novels, both of these memoirs, excuse me, uh, representative or factual or like an evidence of what actually happened. Um, like there's this, really intense focus on the truth value of um, each of these memoirs that um, I think is sort of a of crap. I think that rather than being like, uh, you know, factual observations of um, a representative war experience, they are both stereoscopic visions um, of what happened and that these visions are produced by um, depending on like culturally recognizable tropes and structures. Um, Each of them follow um, sort of conventional literary structures that a domestic population would have recognized. And so that like immediately creates an inroad to present information. And then there's the subjectivity of the author who is also the protagonist. And that, you know, feels really real. Um, And then they both also use a lot of um, memory and reflection, which is not something that I would identify as being like evidentiary at all because it's kind of a retrospective judgment on a situation, but somehow that got completely overlooked in a lot of critical appraisals of both of them. Um, And so my thesis is basically, first of all, making a case for comparison between interwar literature. Um, A lot of critics Contemporary critics are really opposed to the idea of comparing German and British interwar literature because they think that they are simply incomparable, in the words of a contemporary critic. And I mean, they are very different. They are sprung from totally different literary traditions, but I think that the merit in comparing them is to sort of create um, a global vision of the Western Front. Um, And coincidentally, Uh, Blunden and Junger were stationed at the same place at the same time, and so they're actually literally giving, like, the opposite perspective on the same object. Um, And so my argument is that when you read the two memoirs together, you get a stereoscopic vision of this cultural and historical point in
0: time. It it strikes me that it's sort of similar to the American cultural response to 9-11, and particularly to, like, Mm. the conflicted relationship Americans had to the Iraq war. There were lots lots of movies explicitly made about that issue. Yeah. And no one went to see them. Right. None, almost none of them were successful at the box office, even mm-hmm. like action thrillers like Green Zone with Matt Damon. No one remembers that movie. Yeah. But by contrast, all these films that use 9-11 or the security concerns in the background, like the Bourne films, which mm-hmm. to incorporate more of it, or if you look yeah. at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, every mm-hmm. single one of those movies is obsessed with 9-11 issues.
1: Right, and right.
0: They want to be successful because they provide sort of a different optic for people to relive those issues through, as opposed to them just being presented, this really negative aspect of, the, of the, uh, the country's history. It's almost like sort of what you're talking about. It's like this different way of remembering those issues. It's a different way of coming at the subject matter, whereas okay. if you're just presented with the information, you don't want to deal with it because it's this negative aspect of the country's history. Whereas if you have some kind of subjective or one-step removed or if you have a different kind of road you're more willing to engage with it yeah that's just what it made me think of your work sounds fascinating thanks this was a fascinating conversation and i really appreciate you being on the show
1: hey my pleasure
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Poetry Spoken Here. Remember, you can always find Poetry Spoken Here online at PoetrySpokenHere.com. You can also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Poetry Spoken Here, or follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Poetry Spoken Here. Can't get enough of the podcast? Want to let us know how we're doing, if you have ideas for shows, or if you have poems to submit to possibly be included on the podcast you can always send them to poetry here at gmail.com and i would like to say a special thank you to sam Grake for spending so much time talking with us about the poetry and poets of world war one